0: i to find it anyway. I didn't, I'm not saying it wasn't like a forensic examination.
1: You've not been didn't forensically all, examining the. the you, sun's didn't go all,
0: you didn't go all Quincy on it, did you? No, no. no, no they won't be. I won't be getting assigned to AC12 anytime soon.
1: No. I don't get that reference. I, I don't watch Lineage. I, I watched
0: the first.
1: <laughs>
0: I watched the first episode of series one last night, and suddenly I'm the expert.
1: Kate, Kate said <laughs> to me, "Do you think we should watch it from the start?" And I just, I no, looked. No, at, don't watch it. At like, at like the time commitment that would involve, no. and I just thought, no.
0: It's only six six episodes a series, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, they're an hour long.
1: The longer it's
2: gone on, the more... I just... I I can't be bothered watching it anymore. So that's... Seriously, it's very good, but I've just had enough of it.
1: This is the—is this the fifth or the sixth series that's on at the moment? 6th sixth, sixth yeah. isn't it? So that's yeah. you're looking at potentially thirty-six hours of television commitment. I'm not prepared the one, to do that.
2: The one with the caddy in it—I can't remember which one that is, the three or four. That is the best one. That's the only one you should watch. And then you don't that... need to watch any of the others. Well,
3: obviously, you can't... On, just, that like just a... watch that one because the reason it's good is because everything that precedes it, leading up to that, not theme. really.
2: No, you can ignore all that. <laughs> just watch <laughs> the watch, last episode watch, of that series the... three. Absolutely, definitely. Is that Absolutely. like
1: a mystery on a golf course?
2: <laughs> yeah, I can't because it'll well, ruin it. Just Steve
0: is going to watch it all the way through. I don't want to preempt. Is that well, your plan, Steve? Well, I, I understand that Keely Hawes is in some of the episodes, so I'm willing to make the long-term commitment for that reason. Right. So, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she, yeah, She's season two, I think. She is season two. Well, I'll, She's I'll, the whole of
2: season two. Yeah.
0: I'll rattle I'll rattle through season one then. Yeah. Is
1: she Is she the caddy? No. <laughs> Who's the no. golfer?
2: I can't. It, listen, I can't. I can't give it up. Just like under questioning at ac12 i would not crack and tell you who the caddy is i can't tell you
1: change i cannot think of anybody in my life who would crack more than you
2: are you serious what like a yeah. like a warm kit kat you, you would just sing just like shatter?
1: a canary you would sing like, like no, a canary. no no no
2: actually yeah because i keep saying to Nikki, do you think the the marines phil have missed a trick with me being a, a professional player and not part of the marines and she said not really no no unless you're a, like a cook or a driver There's no way the Marines were going to take me on. I would. I would just give them all the information, the enemy, all the information they need. Even if they didn't ask for it, I'd still give it to them.
3: This is Set Beast Money, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Mario Wyeth of BBC's Match of the Day and BT Sport, Rory Luigi Smith of the New York Times, and Andy Princess Peach Hinchcliffe of Sky Sports. And as we discussed a great length last week, seven England caps. Um, Mm. The food is related to listener Cody Schultz's confession that he uh, only eats pasta with ketchup and, to make matters worse, his wife is Italian. Andrew Hopper Davis has a tale that is not unrelated. Dear Stein, Oliver, Ramsey and Nigella, adding to the food topic, I will first point out that my wife is an amazing cook. And since her parents lived in Italy for a period, a large number of my mother-in-law handed down specialities that my wife has perfected are pasta-based. Having heard the gents from the USA who upsets his Italian family-in-law with ketchup pasta and knowing Chinch's favourite, I thought I should let you know, whilst wrong on so many levels, pasta with ketchup and hot dogs is a secret gem. Think of it as the Donna Kebab or cheap double bacon cheeseburger of the pasta world. Sometimes you just fancy some filth. Uh, keep up the good work. That's from <laughs> Andrew Hopper Davis. Uh, any more food abominations, by the way, to Menu at gmail.com. Uh, the football is Chinch. Do you know what we're talking about today? And actually, Chinch, if you wouldn't mind actually telling us, because I forgot to fill in this part of the script.
2: Uh, <laughs> what are we? To- are we talking about footballs getting involved in the real world? Is that is that kind of the gist of it? That that is basically is, yeah. Yes, yeah. That's basically it. Yeah, Yes, That's basically it, isn't it? Goodbye.
3: That, that'll be a subsection about three quarters of the way through our round, uh, okay. no doubt. Um, it is about players clubs and geopolitics and whether the moral compass that you feel guides you also guides your favourite football club or indeed football player. Uh, That is all to come. Uh, You can get in touch with the podcast, at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube as well. Duncan Geddes is back after his slanderous take on my rendition of the EastEnders drums. A take (laughs) I might remind you I pretty successfully took down. Dear Crotchet, Quaver, Semi Quaver and What's It, it is uh, time to admit my EastEnders error says Duncan.
2: Oh, I was basing
3: my analysis not on the actual theme tune, which I should have listened to and checked, but the simpler version that people normally use when they make a joke. Like all great folk music, it evolved as it passed down the generations. Uh, all the best, Duncan. Writing from South London, on a Cockney hill, he is not willing to die on, which uh, contrasts him to <laughs> Gary Farr, the uh, professional musician who was prepared to die on that hill. Um, an important correction from Duncan, I think you'll all agree, uh, which one would hope now puts the matter to bed. To bed with, hang on, who's this? It's brother's wife. Dum 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 dum.
2: So who is who's in the right? Are you back in the right now,
3: Hugh? I was always in the right. I was never. You were always in
2: the right. Uh, but why don't ever that's listeners do never 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 admit you've got it wrong with ferris just 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 tough it out just stick with your original plan
1: i can't remember why what the context of it of the conversation was but kate and i were talking about hugh and steve the other day and kate described hugh and steve as gifted musicians
2: (laughs) what (laughs) how many pints of wine did she have
1: and i said to her I don't know where I'd draw the bar at, at gifted. Do is that is do we think that's an accurate description of you two? Are you both gifted? Depends what your point of reference is. And what age you're
3: talking about.
2: Compare you life. to Lang Lang. <laughs> how are you gifted or
3: Oh chinch pulling out his famous Chinese piano player? Very good. Yes. So how, how good compared to Lang Lang are you? I think I think compared to six year old trumpeters when I was six. Yeah. I'd have been pretty good. I started playing trumpet at the age of seven. Um, the, <laughs> there's a couple <laughs> of other quick emails that fall under the heading of housekeeping, which we will get to uh, briefly. Ian Wright, not that one, writes this. Might be. Glenn, Dina, Garrett and Bo. And then there's Lil Astris saying, none of you are the pretty dull thus far main characters, Amy and Jonah. The reason that he says this is because, thanks for the tip, my girlfriend and I have watched series one of Superstore. On Rory's recommendation, in the past two evenings, best ear. Now this is another example of Rory getting the credit for something that was very much about more than Rory. Uh, no, still, I'm not bitter at all. No, I, I recommend the it. whole thing about it. Anyway,
1: people trust my cultural taste. I'm a touchstone.
0: You Look, are. You are indeed a, a touchstone. Forget the, forget the bickering. We should stop promoting stuff on Netflix until they start promoting us in return. That seems fair. And after Kenny
3: Maddox's soccer story last week was sent alongside a picture of his pod-accompanied walk, uh, which we have since put on social media, uh, Richard Cook has responded to our request for more with an incredible shot. This is mine, he says, from last summer at uh, just before midnight in the Western Isles of Scotland. Peace and tranquility abound. Well, rest assured, Richard, that is going on Twitter as well. Uh, head to at menu to see a fine thread that has already developed uh, over the course of the last few days. Um, Right. Housekeeping done. The two episodes of SPM that have dropped since the last time we were able to feature your correspondence were about the definition of international level uh, and then the sub England 11. Pete Jones is in Liverpool and writes on the former. Hey, Wade, Paul, Sergeant Hampton and Captain Styles. If you get my obscure reference without Google, fair play. And what a great show it was. I didn't. I Googled Bakersfield PD. One season on Fox in the 90s in the States. Brilliant international class was a term says Pete for someone who was better than a really good Premier League player it demonstrated they were more than a consistent stalwart but maybe not quite world class Mm, merely mm. saying good in the Premier League didn't do them justice they had to have that little bit extra it has become somewhat obsolete now by virtue of international football no longer being the pinnacle in terms of quality the Champions League is king far superior now a player who has that little bit extra is someone who would grace any big Champions League side international football represents a step down from the knockout stages of that competition only world class still represents brings true and means something these days. Head to the set piece menu, a back catalog for a discussion on that. That's from Peter Liverpool and Simon Trina on the same subject. Dear Matt Jackson, Dave Watson, David Unsworth. And of course the Everton cup winning back four wouldn't be complete without its left back Gary Ablett. Gablet, yes. Listening to Andy's talk of cliques in the England squad reminded me of something I learned from Rafa Honigstein's Das Reboot. Uh, following another near miss at euro 2012 the german team management realized that the players were divided on club lines particularly dortmund and bayern and though and although bayern selflessly attempted to solve this through their own Mm. transfer policy it was still a factor the squad space for the 2014 world cup had five chalets for the players and each Mm. was assigned a senior player and three or more players split not by club or first eleven versus backups and it works Although, as they presumably did the same thing in 2018, it could be a case of Rory Smith's banana bread theory trademark. That's weird. I don't remember typing that trademark symbol or indeed Rory's name.
1: It's no, also like that it. one definitely, unlike the Superstar recommendation, that one definitely isn't my, that, that's not my intellectual property. Uh, cheers from Simon. Did they miss a trick by not filming those chalets in, <laughs> in the Big Brother style? <laughs> Dear 34, Thomas Muller. I can't do any more Geordie that's it. That's all I've got.
3: <laughs> or remember any of the 2014 German uh, Cup winning squad. <laughs>
1: Lothar yeah. Mateus? Yeah, I can't remember
3: who else was in it. Next to a couple of responses to our team formed of players who have won six England caps or fewer. Here is Stuart Hill. Dear Bjorn, Benny, Agneta, and Frida. Yes, na- Frida. <laughs> you may or may not have had that one. He says. Long-time listener of the pod and thought the Subchinch 11 episode was great. However. I thought at the end when saying that there may have been some players from yesteryear who would make it into your team, I think you might have been undercooking it a little. When listening to the episode, I pressed pause when I heard the idea and chose my team so as to not be influenced by your conversation. And then when I resumed, you immediately read out the rules and were only choosing players from 1987 onwards. But of all-time players who had six caps or fewer for England, I would have chosen only one who made their debut after Chinch's professional debut. I'm a Manchester United fan, so maybe slightly biased, but each of these has good reason to be in there. My all-time team would be. Uh, Alex Stepney, Paul Reaney, uh, who I had to Google to check, he won the title twice under Don Revi at Leeds. Mm. He was the right back for for Leeds. Bill Folks, Steve Bold, and Alan Kennedy, David Pegg, David Sadler, Ian Callahan, Dennis Stewart, Dennis Violet, and Don Revi. That's an
2: excellent team.
1: Yeah. yeah, it's difficult. It's difficult because obviously. Apart from Bold, I don't I don't think I ever yeah. saw any of those players play. Yeah. But yeah, they are all all big names. Alan Kennedy. You never saw
2: Alan Kennedy play.
1: Wouldn't have
0: seen Alan Kennedy play, no. no.
2: He was fantastic.
0: It is difficult to to make a judgment on players you've not seen, which is why we had the parameters of our discussion. You're sort of basing that lineup on nostalgia, which yeah, can can never be entirely reliable.
3: Stuart continues, this whole episode also reminded me of a time when my Everton supporting friend Mark and I, aged seven, picked our England squads for the 1998 World Cup, blissfully unaware of what was going on in the manga at the time. (laughs) We we did have our own (laughs) disagreement, though. And it was over who to take us back up to Graham Lasso. For me, Phil Neville was the obvious choice. And for Mark, in what I thought at the time was a bonkers decision, decided to take Andy Hinchcliffe. And then Glenn Hoddle took neither. And to this day, I wonder what would have happened if Lasseau had got injured. Uh, some stew. What would have happened if Graeme Lasseau got injured?
2: Who would have... Uh, who was the... They must have had a kind of Milner-esque type of character who could have played... Who would have... It may That's have been Phil James Neville. Milner. <laughs> no, Milner wasn't... 98, Milner wouldn't have been around then, would he? He
1: was in his early early 30s. He
2: was was about 12, wasn't he? (laughs) He was either 12 or 38.
3: He's been in his early 30s (laughs) since he was 12. And finally, from Buffalo, Rich Reardon, who remarkably writes, on the same subject and also starts with, dear Benny, Bjorn, Anifrid and Agneta.
2: Oh, so um... I'm... You're I'm both now and not for I'm both. I'm both of the ladies. Excellent.
3: Thank you for the continuing high standards and quality content, he says, capitalizing Q and C. Truly, it is a joy and comfort, especially in these trying times, of Carlisle going from top of League Two down to 14th the bloody egypts to the business at hand try to picture a left back with five league titles four league cups two european cups nearly 400 appearances for the best team in the country at the height of their powers and then imagine again that this left back turns up when it matters most pinging in goals from 25 yards in two domestic cup finals scoring the winner in one european cup final and the winning penalty in another a great team player loved by supporters valued by teammates with terrific skill and no serious injury or discipline problems although the perm is a bit much alan kennedy yeah two caps 7 for Chinch seems slightly over generous yeah, I, yes, I,
2: I am I am, ashamed of that fact 5 more caps than Alan Kennedy that's
3: disgraceful
1: wh- why was that who was in the team ahead of him Kenny,
2: would that have been Kenny Sansom around that time was Kenny Sansom played for like 20 years didn't he at left back
3: Rich continues 86 caps for Kenny Sansom seems yeah. like utter lunacy now especially uh, given the first was awarded before he'd even played in the top flight comparing stuff like this always leads to bizarre findings Robbie Fowler had to score 63 Premier League goals just to get his first cap for England Danny Welbeck has 42 caps not a bad return from 47 Premier League goals in 12 years but this isn't the main reason I write inspired by SPM 224 I had a look at the Wikipedia articles you mentioned England players with one cap two to three four to nine etc some are obvious poor old Joe Corrigan did well to get nine with Shilton and Clements about some are reminders of a time when skill was valued less Rodney Marsh also just nine caps Mm. best of all the names now, there may well be a time in the future when people find humor in drab monikers such as Michael Owen or Harry Kane. I doubt it, though, because the following all played for England Dickie Bond, Warney Cresswell, Billy Moon, <laughs> Evelyn Lintot, Abba Marley Swepstone. I'm not making this up, he says.
1: <laughs> say that
3: again. Say that again. Abba Marley Swepstone. The Albemarle. Albemarle? Albemarle. Oh, what a shame. Albemarle Swepstone, then. <laughs> uh, Fanny Walden, followed by Jack <laughs> Cock. Uh, prime candidate for Manscaped, says Rich. Rupert Sanderlands. Redfern Froggart.
1: <laughs> Steve's dad.
3: Is this a Brian's Henry visited 11? What's going on here? Dr. Greenwood. Yes, Dr. was his first name.
0: <laughs> it's Dr., <doctor>, Dr. <doctor.
3: laughs> Cunliffe Gosling. <laughs> this, this can't be true. Billy Beats. Billy Braun. Basil Patchett. Bedford Jezzard. That's your your, your four four B's in the field I would assume And then the final two Pelham Von Dollop Um, And of course He says, I don't know why Harry Daft uh, it's a dull bank holiday weekend, so no, I'm not above laughing at names from the 19th century. So to sum up, Chinch may have fewer caps than Kieran Gibbs, but at least he doesn't sound like a character from Jeeves and Worcester. And Alan oh. Kennedy is lagging behind him. Thanks for keeping on. That's uh, Buffalo Rich Reardon from Sunny Bootle. Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com.
1: Bedford Jesuit is remarkable. That is a brilliant name.
3: Who's the, the Von Dollop? Is it Von, von, von Dolop? Von Dollop. D
2: O L O P. What's his first name? Pelham, as in 123. As in Pelham, one, two, Pelham Von Dolop. Yeah. What,
1: what, uh, you when you did he put, play? You,
2: Where did he play? That that's got to be made up.
1: You're putting a bit too much sauce on the surname there. His name is Pelham von Dollop. There's no. It's not von Dollop or some some fancy. It's Dollop. He's Pelham von. And to be honest, it sounds a bit like he's added the von in to make himself sound better. <laughs> oh <my God>. Pelham <laughs> Dollop. From <laughs> Barnsley. <But> <laughs> A Von in front of anything, you'll be fine.
2: Have we done it? Have we done a silly names, or uh, you know, again, we're, just, we're gonna be careful here because the, the families of, of these people might get really upset that we're laughing. Yeah, you, at them. you do Have not
1: we, want to get on the run side yeah. of the Von, Von the Dollop. When was the oh. last
0: time you met a Von Dollop in casual
1: conversation? You only
2: need to meet one with a high powered rifle. Is it worth doing a Silly Names 11? Let's let let's see if we can get a, a really good, but they have to actually, you can't just get silly names and just put them in a team. They have to have played the positions that you put them in.
3: Uh, well, I think I think Rich is kind of half the way there, but uh, yes, anything that you think would ad- would add and amend that, menu at gmail.com. Support for Setpiece Menu is brought to you by Manscaped, who's the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. Uh, now, have you gone to manscaped.com yet and entered the code SPM for 20% off and free shipping? You've had a lot of time to do it. You don't have much time to do it from now on, so go and do it now. Manscaped is already trusted by over 2 million men worldwide, is now available to UK customers, and if you felt, say for example, even just for a millisecond, slightly uncomfortable about embracing such an excellent product, this is where we tell you to lean in. Follow the example of Mr. Andy Hinchcliffe, and indeed Rory, because his lawnmower 3.0 arrived with his in-laws at the house, and I imagine he styled it out beautifully.
1: Uh, I didn't describe it in any great detail uh, and left fairly swiftly. But there's no reason to be embarrassed. There's no reason to be, to be ashamed. It's, it's purely a personal maintenance tool. Uh, and if they weren't relatively squeamish, I didn't want to reveal that part of my life to them. I'm sure I would have talked to them about it <laughs> at great length.
3: <laughs> well all you would have needed to tell them Roy is that the Lomo 3.0 has a new ceramic blade to reduce accidents. There's a light to show you where you're going. The battery will last 90 minutes. You can shave in the shower as it's waterproof. The motor is 7000 rpm. It has a charging dock as well. Consider it fully endorsed by all four of us now it would be remiss of us as well to not mention at this point that it would be greatly helpful to us if you were able to take advantage of this offer this is the terms and conditions indeed if for example you plan to purchase something from manscaped.com using the code spm for 20 percent off and free delivery but you're thinking my mate dave's birthday isn't until november it is with a slightly pleading tone that we now say buy it please
0: now thank you is dave really really hairy and he needs to get hairy dave
1: hairy dave
3: are we getting a massive kickback from any sales uh, well, let's, let's hope that that's true somewhere down the line. But if we don't get any sales, then we certainly won't be getting any kickback. And that is 20% off with free delivery at manscaped.com and use the code SPM. Your balls and we, and maybe potentially your in-laws, will thank you.
0: Yeah, it's not a money-making scheme. It's all about the smooth ghoulies. <laughs> I, I like to imagine that when, when Rory's <laughs> arrived, he unpacked it hastily. Grabbed the lawnmower 3.0 and the ball toner out of the box and raced upstairs, shouting, <laughs> "It's not just Hector's regular groomer who's currently unavailable."
1: No, well, news for you there. First of all, I don't have a personal like body groomer. That's not <laughs> who knows that you keep upstairs. Mind you, I suppose that's the thing that people. There will be people out there who have a personal body. You know, very a, regu- big a regular behind
2: you with a very big padlock on it. Who's a regular waxer? <laughs> uh,
1: Hector has, has now been groomed. It's Lidl again. Hector is slightly resentful of, of the fact he's been groomed, but he looks a lot better. Uh, Claire, who does it, does an excellent job around his gentleman's garden. Uh, and that can't be easy with a sort of a sort of squirming spaniel. And I, the problem that I had with the with the arrival of the manscaped products, all of which they t- it comes in a lovely box. And as soon as we get any package through, because Ed has become a consumerist over the last over the last year, where life has just been a sort of fairly regular stream of Amazon packages arriving, mm. he insists on opening them, opening them at the door. He gets very excited. And therefore I had to explain to Ann and Ken precisely what was in the box. But that was a difficult thing to do with two people who maybe didn't didn't grow up in a generation where where that t- type of personal maintenance was a regular feature, I would guess. I don't know, but we're different. We're better than that now, aren't we? Yeah,
3: we are. Yeah we're better than our elders that always goes down well
1: i think that's that's what i mean and i'm sticking with it
3: well elders don't understand podcasts so they're not going to listen to exactly that,
1: (laughs) that that is not our demographic stephen
3: now we've often said that the best ideas for our subjects come from listeners hell last week was a fine example wasn't it but one of the main reasons that is the case is that it means that i have a lot less writing to do so without further ado here is ewan fraser dear podcasters firstly A word of thanks. I've been listening to the pod for some time, but have been particularly grateful to you all during this past year. Your witterings have been a source of comfort and laughter and insight during this uncertain, anxiety-ridden spell we're all in. Thank you. Secondly, my condolences to Chinch and your family, Chinch, having suffered a couple of bereavements over the last year. I know it can be a difficult time to grieve. I hope you've been able to find the support that you need. Thirdly, my point. What happens when football doesn't meet your own moral standards? Like many football fans, I chose my team when I was young. I was around five or six and I became a Rangers fan. I was living in Glasgow and as such had the simple choice to make. Naturally, I chose the team with Brian Laudrup and Ali McCoist in it. I knew nothing of the unpleasantness of the old firm divide. In 1998, Dennis Perkamp's magnificence at the World Cup led to me falling in love with all things Dutch. And so I picked up Arsenal for Dennis and Barcelona for their Dutch connections and contingent at the time. And so at the age of eight, my footballing choices were made. I might have thought about
1: supporting a Dutch team there, to be honest. (laughs) I feel like it's Dutch football.
3: But at the age of 31, I'm a little more worldly-wise, and I'm not sure I would make the same decisions again. When Rangers were sent down to the fourth tier of Scottish football, I hoped they might take the opportunity to rid themselves of their sectarian associations. Alas, not. And I grew tired of apologising for my support of them. Rangers fans sing proudly that no-one likes us, we don't care, but I want my club to be admired. I want principles and decency to matter. Arsenal, a club which prides itself on adopting a dignified approach, made 55 people redundant during the pandemic whilst making their superstar striker even wealthier, not to mention their billionaire owner and sponsorship by Emirates. Barcelona, for all their talk of being Mesquite and club, have played their part in the restructuring of the Champions League and the move to a Super League, all out of self-interest, not to mention Qatar, players' tax crimes and the obscene transfer fees that they have been accustomed to paying. With the recent World Cup qualifiers, I've been asking myself, will I even watch the tournament given the atrocities which have been committed to make it possible? I work for an anti-slavery charity and so engaging with this World Cup feels particularly hypocritical. And so I feel a sense of footballing homelessness. Maybe this is all inevitable. It is naive to think that my clubs would be bastions of goodness and fair play. They have profit margins and brand recognition to worry about. But there is a definite loss of connection to these clubs in the direction of the global game, which goes beyond a sense of perspective gained from getting a wee bit older. I rarely watch Premier League matches as they feel more and more like two businesses fighting over a bag of cash, despite some excellent co-commentary. My question, I suppose, is how can (laughs) I slash we continue to love the game, engage with it, invest money, time, emotional energy in it when it is heading in a direction which feels morally bankrupt? Perhaps it means disengaging with the top level of the game and finding a level which still retains that sense of community, even if that does mean supporting Partick Thistle. Uh, Many thanks and best wishes. That's from Ewan Fraser. So from within Ewan's musings, we have this question. How much should we expect football to reflect our own moral compass. We first saw Norway, then Germany, then the Netherlands, and then Denmark protesting against the conditions faced by migrant workers in Qatar, those who are helping to deliver the 2022 World Cup. Is that an example of footballers realising that it might be up to them to make a point that those who run the game are unable or unwilling to make? And of course, our relationship with our favourite club can often be rife with inconsistencies and conflicts when we consider how to reconcile how we feel about the world and how some of the darker, uglier sides of that world play a part in helping to make that club successful so how much should we expect football to reflect our own moral compass
1: there's quite a lot to unpack from that email isn't there so the, the qatar thing and the connection of football to kind of geopolitical issues feel separate to me to things like transfer fee inflation and arsenal and and others using the furlough scheme I, Businesses using the furlough scheme is not something at any point, at any point I really felt strongly about. I'm not quite sure why we thought that football clubs weren't shouldn't. I don't I I understand the argument that football clubs shouldn't have used it. I, I understand absolutely that it's a bad look. I think if you think about it in the cold light of day and you take the emotion out of it, they are on one level at least businesses and they were entitled to to furlough staff. I've got friends who work at clubs, not in as you, as all of you will do who are not paid remarkable sums of money not everyone at a football club earns 375 grand a week there's a lot of kind of normal office workers and people who work in comms or in marketing or whatever you know who just do normal jobs they just happens to be for, for football teams and speaking to them at the time last last spring this time last year their view was that if they get furloughed then they are more likely to have a job to come back to what happened at arsenal was 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 very very bad PR, and it was not sensible decision making on lots and lots of different levels. I'm not sure why they'd ever bum on that contract. To be perfectly honest, <laughs> um, I, I don't think there was a moral case for them not furloughing staff. I think there was a there was a PR case for them not doing it. There was an optical case for them not doing it. But they are businesses ultimately, and they had a right to do it, just as any business did. Um, can I just jump
0: because I just jump in there, Rory. Yeah. yeah. And add that by global terms, football clubs are not huge businesses there are many larger businesses that took advantage of the furlough scheme than premier league football clubs i was at everton last night as we record now there's a plaque on the wall there in reception saying that, that they, they are everton are proud to have been one of uh, the the sunday times top 100 small businesses to work for mm. they everton a large premier league football club are defined as a small business so football football clubs as businesses are very very visual to us but they they shouldn't be the the barometer by which we we define such moral decision making
1: and i think this is this is that's kind of the, the root of the problem that we expect we expect an awful lot of football clubs and of football in general we expect it to be held up to we hold it up to a moral standard that i think we don't necessarily apply to certainly to other businesses to an extent, to other community institutions, and almost certainly to our own lives. So, I think the answer to this—the answer to this question—is it even more kind of oblique than than the answers to most of our questions, which is that it depends a lot on what your personal moral compass is.
3: Obviously, obviously, it uh, it, it depends on your own moral compass, but also the the, the reason of repurposing quite a lot of what you and said into that question, hopefully, was rather cleverly done on account of the fact that how much would should we expect football to reflect our own moral compass that has two two caveats with it our own moral compass might be completely different to, to a moral compass that say the four of us might subscribe to in general terms and also it's whether it's not whether football does it's whether we should expect it to for the reasons that you just mentioned Rory and and Steve that they are they are football clubs small businesses they are all those things but how many businesses do we have and it, the kind of emotional investment in that any other business that we interface with has
1: well i'm i'm, I'm hugely attached to next <laughs> obviously and to an extent i would say support next well you you've uh, in, told in me all your slippers
3: endeavors. are from next and i love your slippers
1: but most of my 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 garments are from next and and you know i've, I've got a next scarf i don't wave it around anyway the um is it is it just is it
3: just is it half next and uh,
1: half next half h&m is it just is it
0: just clothing and footwear from next or or do you go go for their strangely expensive
1: furniture as well absolutely not Steve. absolutely not no we're we're an ikea family and and we got that from my parents and uh He took my dad to, me <laughs> to my first Ikea when I was five and, and, um, and he got it from his dad. Yeah. What it? if you don't
3: live near an Ikea?
1: Then so well, look, if you go for the if
3: you, biggest Ikea that's in the country.
1: I think I think the, the problem with Ikea actually is that you you probably go for the Yeah, you go for the most famous Ikea, almost the one the Ikea that's won the most Ikea store of the year awards. That that would be the, the way Which of choosing. Which we all know
3: because, is Brent in North London.
1: Uh, I would hope not. I mean, Warrington is a Warrington. is a classic IKEA.
3: I already prefer Ashton to Warrington, so Ashton. That's just Ashton, Ashton. Ashton is excellent. Excellent. It,
1: it, Ashton has the most ludicrous approach road. No, thank you. I'm anti Ashton. Warrington Ashton, obviously, famously IKEA rivals. Anyway,
0: <laughs> well, a, a, Ashton IKEA near Manchester City, new money. Warrington IKEA near Manchester United and Liverpool, traditional money.
1: Yeah, exactly. I think. How are we going to deal with the the personal moral compass thing? Because obviously Ewan's moral compass, which seems pretty much you know, due north or whatever compasses do, is his to decide for himself. There'll be other people who have no problem with clubs furloughing or there'll be people who have no problem with... Well, well, sectarianism is a little bit different. There'll be people who have no problem with the Qatar World Cup, who, who have no issue with transfer fees or whatever it might be. This is actually something I've been thinking about a lot, that... I think one of the one of the challenges that football faces is that everyone, and that not just players and managers and, and executives, but fans probably more fans more than anybody else, because we feel such a personal, a deeply personal, intimate connection to the game. We see it as ours, in a very in, in the sense that it belongs to us, and that is us in the collective, but it's also us in the individual. That it's it's my game, and it's it's Steve's, Steve's version of football, Steve's vision of football. Is, will be slightly different to mine, but the the things that he expects of it and expects from it are personal to him and in, and they're kind of intimately held. And I think a lot of the problem with with trying to change any form of football, and this is this is a, 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 definitely not a moral question, but you think about VAR. I think one of the reasons there's so much objection to VAR is because there is because all of us feel that it has changed our game, the game that we have that we love. In our own individual way, fund in some, on some fundamental level, and we don't like that, that kind of external interference in something that belongs that we feel belongs to us, and that applies in terms of you know games being scheduled at, at times that we think are non-traditional. There's this sort of personal, intimate connection to football, and I think that's one of the challenges when you come to a moral, the moral question is that whose, whose moral compass is football meant to be appealing to? What moral compass is it meant to be adopting? Whether it should have a moral compass is a different and probably more pressing question, because at the moment it's very clear to see that it doesn't
3: so yes it it is true to say that everybody 's personal relationship with football guides whether football should meet or they expect football to meet their their own moral compass so so that is a personal decision that is an individual decision based on what we 've heard from Ewan. Uh, we understand those specific elements of how he feels football isn 't matching his own moral compass so but it but it gives birth to a a wider conversation about whether football yes Rory should have a moral compass or generally whether we should actually consider that question as individuals more than we might have done in the past and the reason that it is difficult is because we have an emotional relationship with a player for example and we talked a lot haven't we on this podcast about how um, particularly fans who are geographically dislocated from teams follow players so for example if they are a fan of Lionel Messi and Lionel Messi does something that does that conflicts with their own moral compass do they have to think twice about whether they like Lionel Messi so much but chinch from, from from your point of view do you, do you understand why there needs to be at least some consideration personal your own individual relationship with football but also football in the wider context that they should be considering do we have a moral compass or do you think because of everything that we just said Football doesn't need to necessarily consider that because there are other priorities.
2: Well, I, I would come at it, obviously, from my point of view, would be as a, as a former player. If you look at the sections within the game, the organisations like FIFA and UEFA, the leagues, the clubs, and then you look at the players. I was thinking, if I was playing today, should I, should I again, understand, say, the situation that's going on in Qatar? And should I be able to answer questions as a player about whether it's right or wrong to play a World Cup there. Is it is it fair? Because players are people as well, but because they're in the spotlight, because of the way football is, just looking at players, is it, I was thinking about this, is it fair to ask them, ask to Raheem Sterling, do you feel we should be playing the World Cup in Qatar? Is that a fair question, do you feel, for the modern player? Or are you saying, well, it's not really their responsibility, it's up to their, their nations or their governments or their organisations <clears throat> to make this decision for them? Or... Do they have that individual responsibility to answer questions on that level? And again, something they I don't know really what's going on over there. So, But is it, is it right to actually turn the spotlight on them and expect them to have an opinion and to be really strong and say, well, I don't want to go and play in that World Cup because of what's happening? Or is that, is that unfair on, on players?
3: that's probably also a similar issue in that each of those players has to have that conversation with themselves about their individual relationship that, between when I was playing them, their moral was, compass yeah. and the issues at hand.
2: I know the focus on, on the game and on players with social media and everything else is, is a lot. It's been ramped up massively since I played. I can't remember ever being asked, about anything. I never did interviews anyway, but even I was never asked about anything that was going on in the world. It was always about if you were going to be asked, it was about what's happening with your club or your nation or with other teams. It was always within football. You never asked about wars that were going on and and your opinion on that type of thing. So has again, because the world's changed with social media and and how players are expected. And then you get people like Marcus Rashford, who's heavily involved in in kind of meals for, for poorer kids, but he's been through that. So maybe that's why, again, he did a brilliant job of of helping out in that regard. But that's something he experienced, so it's natural. But once someone like Rashford does that, does that then make the public think, well, all players then should have some kind of responsibility and should answer questions about the wider world. Is, Is that their responsibility, not just playing the game, but thinking bigger? And that's the huge change from when I was playing to maybe modern players today. But I just wonder whether it is fair and to expect them to have an answer to that, to these bigger questions that really they might have absolutely no information about whatsoever. Is it up to them to find out what's going on and have an answer for it because they're in the spotlight so much?
0: Well, this is one of the huge challenges for, for, the, for our players, especially those that play at the elite level, is that because they are visual, they are expected to, to take a lead in certain things. And they either need to find a way of informing themselves about that or, or go along with the prevailing mood. But in either way, they are doing that despite the fact that ultimately they aren't the ones that that make the decisions. So those players, for example, trying to draw attention to the situation in Qatar during the World Cup qualifiers, well, that's phenomenal. And that is exactly what you would hope that they would do. But ultimately, it will be down to their national associations and their governments as to whether or not the team is represented at the World Cup. Individual players might say, well, I think we should boycott. And you know what? I am going to boycott this World Cup. I've looked into it. I I think it's absolutely deplorable. But they could just then ultimately be replaced by a player who is willing to go to the World Cup because an opportunity has suddenly presented itself to them. And we've seen it with players being asked to take a a pay cut when we went into lockdown just over a year ago, that... It was seen as being footballers have to take a pay cut. They have to do the right thing and take a pay cut. But it was only high-earning footballers who were expected to do that, not people in other industries making even more money. So we've got so many contradictions, so many conflicts within these conversations and an awful lot of burden of responsibility is being placed on footballers' shoulders.
2: But do you think That's... it's fair? Do you think do you think it's something they just have to accept? Is it part of being a footballer in, in the it, modern age?
1: I think several things have changed. One is one is the kind of rise of athlete activism in the States, which has has made it more common and more accepted to an extent that, that that athletes might have views on these issues. And I think to
2: be so honest, that been the case they... in America have have they been more kind of involved in
1: yeah, the, N- the uh, it's NBA. A bit
2: of a, you know, kind of a, a, a sweeping comment, to say, but has it happened more in sport in the states? Are they more vocal about general yeah, topics the, over there?
1: The, so the the NBA players are particularly. No, they're not unique, but the NBA players are particularly kind of active in in social justice conversations and in, in issues like like Black Lives Matter and, and racism. They've been very outspoken. The lead to its credit has kind of shifted to allow them to do that, or not to allow them to that 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 has a, a connotation that I think isn't right, but to to facilitate that switch, the lead has accepted this is what our, our players, our stars want to do. Wouldn't let them do it. I think with that and with Rashford and examples like that, I actually think there's quite a long tradition of football footballers, sports people, whoever it might be, being involved with with social issues, with with community issues, with with problems in you know social problems within their own country. Things like food poverty. That's the sort of thing that that clubs, in fact, have always taken. A lot of interest in ever no, there's no better example than everton who do who do a lot of really good work in the community they they see that partly as their as their duty as a football team i suspect if i'm completely honest that that to an extent that is they're not you know they're not averse to the fact that it looks good for them as well they they are again in that sense they are thinking like a bit like a business everton are not a charity but they they think like a business and they realize that that it benefits their business if they make part of their existence about helping the community in which they are based. And that's absolutely fine. That's not a, a criticism in the slightest. Um, I think all of that stuff has a, has quite a long backstory within football that players have always helped. Clubs have always helped. There's there's always been players who who will speak up on, on issues that are close to their heart, whether it's, whether it's race or, or, or whatever it might be. I think the big difference now between football and the other sports and football and footballers now and say Chinch's generation or, or, or the, I guess the generation between Chinch and now is is the way football has been exposed to various geopolitical currents and I think Chinch is totally right that that's not something for the players it's that that should not be put on a 22 year old Sander Berger to speak about you know human rights in Qatar because there's no reason necessarily to expect Sander Berger to have opinions on human rights in Qatar he should be protected by his national associations, by the league that he plays in, by FIFA, by UEFA, to not have to make those decisions. But sadly, none of those bodies have really shown the slightest bit of interest in, in trying to establish a moral compass for football. Trying to FIFA talked loads about how football can be a force for good and a force for change, and that because... And, you know, we only know about human rights issues in Qatar because the World Cup is there. And there is some truth in that. But FIFA, at the same time, have made absolutely no attempt whatsoever to to use the leverage provided by the World Cup to improve the situation in in Qatar. The thing that has changed the most, though, is that in the last 20 years, football is now being used on these stages through no fault of its own. It's not the Premier League's fault that lots of, or Lee 1's fault, that that. Investment groups that may or may not be linked to nation states, but also if, if they're not linked to nation states, it's not quite clear where the money, money comes from, but they're definitely not linked to nation states. Is that all right? But obviously, if there's no nation state involved, then quite what they're doing, no one really knows. But it's definitely not a nation state. It's not the Premier League's fault that those, that those investment groups have decided they want to get involved with football. It's because football is, is as David Goldblatt has written, the most successful cultural phenomenon of all time. Football is being used by people who see its power and they want a piece of the action. And it's that that has placed everybody in this invidious position. The problem is that the players should be being protected by clubs, leagues, governing bodies, and they're not. So ultimately, because those governing bodies have, have abdicated their own responsibilities, it filters down and it's left to some, you know, to Ilkay Gundogan to put a T-shirt on.
2: So is it, if there is, a, say, a lack of a moral compass at, at league level or organisational level, is it is it a bit is it too crass to say? Well, having a moral compass is going to cost you money, because you're going to have to not go through and do the things that that are the money makers in terms of national associations and leagues. Is it is is that too? Is that simplifying it?
1: I think that's how the clubs see it and how the leads see it, but I I don't know if that actually, and I think that's where the problem is. That so obviously the the the, the undercurrent of this conversation is City and PSG and the the twenty two twenty twenty two World Cup. City and PSG are really controversial because it it looks to me and to quite a lot of people like they are being used to further the aims of a specific nation. They are owned by sovereign wealth funds or by investment funds that come from sovereign wealth funds. They are in some way linked to governments, And you can have a problem with that or you can not have a problem with that. Most Man City fans, certainly there's a a voluble minority of Man City fans who absolutely have no problem with that. We saw that when when the Saudis were linked with the takeover of Newcastle that loads of Newcastle fans changed their, their Twitter avatars to Saudi flags. What a year after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, there is. We we have seen time and again that Hugh, you asked, you know, would you su- stop supporting your club or what? In a lot of cases, it's the what. What you do is you change your moral compass, or you make sure that the that what's happening with your club does not interfere with your moral compass whatsoever. You change your views to support your club. It is not that is not a logical reaction in lots and lots of ways. I think you can enjoy Man City's or PSG's success while still worrying or querying or being vaguely uncomfortable with the source of the wealth that's, that's, that's that supercharged it, that's accelerated it. I think that, that is not a difficult, logical position to hold. You don't have to be a supporter of Abu Dhabi to be a supporter of Manchester City. You don't have to be a supporter of Qatar to be a supporter of Paris Saint-Germain. But if you looked at things like sponsorships, so Liverpool are sponsored by Standard Chartered. Standard Chartered have been, and have been for about 10 years, Standard Chartered have been hauled over the coals and I think fined for helping Mexican cartels to launder money. There have been issues with where standard chartered who who standard chartered will bank for I I don't think it's too much to ask a football team to say that that if standard chartered will pay you 50 million 20 a year or whatever wouldn't be that much standard chartered will pay you 10 million 20 a year or I don't know a company that is I don't know waterstones or waterstones will pay you 8 million a year I don't think it's too much to ask a football club because of the social context within which they exist to take the lower offer on the grounds of having a clearer conscience because, i don't think that's too much to ask
3: because they are not just a small business because as they we are, were speaking about earlier they they do have or should they have more of a more of a question than a statement should they have a responsibility to a moral compass either provided from within each individual person who works there or generally speaking one for football should they be adhering to that by losing two million pounds at a potential no, annual responsibility mm, exactly, yeah. so, so
1: yeah. they are small but they, this is this is, the, this is the, the core tension isn't it that football clubs are two things they are businesses and they are, so, they are social institutions. And I think that most fans accept in some way that they will at times act like businesses, that they will buy and sell players, that they will sign t- the t- you know, the TV deals to make as much money as possible. They have to think like businesses. I don't think there might be some fans who object to that completely, but I don't really see what the alternative is. They have to act like businesses. They have to think like businesses. I think there comes a point where you have to accept that with power comes responsibility, and football's power is to try and... Football is always talking about its, its power to inspire good in the world. And I think at some point the clubs have to um, adhere to that. The problem is, of course, that Waterstones very clearly can't pay £8 million a year to sponsor Liverpool. Um, although if you don't and buy books, then maybe. the <laughs> And the, the reality is that, that it might be standard charted at 10, but then some other company that's done some, something else a bit shady at 8, and then some other company that's done something shady at 7. And the, the first company that, that doesn't have a sort of vaguely purity test. Yeah. It's where, where do you draw the line? How much money do you expect a club to, to lose so that it can have, it can, it can say we are, we are sort of purer than pure. And how many
2: clubs would actually, actually do that? They're they're not going to do that. are they? Because
1: because it's easy. It is a, obviously more profitable to just take, take the highest bidder Mm -hmm. and B it's easier for the clubs to say, that's none of our business.
2: You, you surely then you can't then say well it's nothing to do with us because you're
1: promoting the business exactly
2: yeah so you, you how, are, you, that that's no defense to say well that's their business not ours you're taking their money to put equally, their name on your
1: on your t-shirts team possibly and and ad- essentially advocate for that There's all all those companies got loads of business because if you ultimately if you see a if you see emirates on the splashed on the front of psg or real madrid or arsenal shirts you think they're probably quite a good airline. Whereas if, you know, if there's another airline that doesn't get all that advertised and you, you, you're you less likely to think I'll book a flight with them. I, mm. I, I I don't think I've ever flown Emirates, but I instinctively trust them. I assume that they're, they're a good airline because they sponsor Arsenal.
3: I used to but, laugh at the name of Aeroflot until I realised they became Manchester United's official carrier. So uh, And now you point, sort of think, well, they're,
1: they're, um, they're their, excellent. Their, their safety record must be outstanding. You, do, you don't see S7, the Siberian airline, which I have flown on it and is fine. You don't see them sponsoring teams. So it's when I, when I had to book a flight to... All, Ulan Ude with with S seven in during the World Cup, I was like, I don't know if I want to fly S seven, but if it was Aeroflot, I'd have been like, yeah, of course, they sponsor Man United. What's the problem? Mm. What football would say is not only why should they cost themselves money, not only where is the line, it's why on earth should football police this stuff? It's, that's not football's job. But I, I do think that to me that's the problem that I think you I don't think it's too much to ask football clubs to 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 accept that there is a moral element to these decisions that they make and that, that that it should play some part. And I think that's my, my instinct would be that's where where most fans would would want clubs to kind of act is, you know, maybe you, you don't go on, but then I don't know, does do you go on you know preseason tours to China because of the question of what's what of what's happening in Xinjiang Maybe maybe you don't. But then if you don't then somebody else will and they'll make they'll make all that money. So it's a really complicated question.
0: Something else that that you and talked about and I think we've skirted around it is is how you as a fan view your morals for continuing to support a club that maybe you feel as though the morals have gone a little bit askew. And I guess you do have some strength as a supporter, some ability to dictate the way that your club operates. You you, you don't have to be... All in with your support all of the time in terms of giving the club as much money as you've got available to give them. There are different ways you can support. You can go to games, but not buy a shirt. So if you have got an issue with the the sponsor's name on the front of a shirt, for example, well, do you know what? Don't buy a shirt. Buy some fan produced memorabilia instead, because lots of clubs do that. We, I think we talked a little bit about it when we were talking about Newcastle's potential takeover. Uh, uh, a couple of years. Well, how long ago was that? About a year That's ago. Last last summer. In that we were, say, you know, like we were saying, imagine you're a Newcastle fan with a with a child who's just become aware of football and is old enough to go to games. Do you say, well, do you know what? I'm not taking my my child to St James's Park because I don't agree with with Mike Ashley's running of the club. Well, no, I don't think you'd expect that person to do that to make that such a, a huge decision. For them, something that they've been looking forward to, to, to take their offspring to their first game. But you could perhaps say, would well, you know what? I'm not going into the club shop and also spending 50 quid in there when I take them to their first match. There are ways that you can mm. drive your club in a direction that you, you feel it should be heading in. And do you know what? You can still be a fan of a club and not go and watch them. You could go and watch somebody else lower that. Football isn't just about the elite level. If you're no longer comfortable going to top level football because you feel as though its moral compass is currently pointing in the wrong direction, then fo- football exists. At, 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 at the sharp intake of breath from Rory, mm. but football football exists at numerous different levels. You can go, you can enjoy football in so many ways. It doesn't have to be in a forty thousand all seater stadium.
1: The it's just. I agree with 97% of what Steve just said. Okay. So but the, you're going to focus on the three <laughs> yeah. percent. Yeah. No, so like I think what you said about the the parent taking their kid is that's that's a really good example of the club lasts longer than the ownership or the manager or the players. So you you don't not take your kid to me because you think Mike Ashley's abominable, even though that's clearly a like a, a completely valid view to hold. Because you know that and some pass point, down
3: to your kid as well.
1: <laughs> yeah, but at some point in your kid's life, Mike Ashley's not going to be there, and Newcastle United still will be. So you, you take you want your kid to be a Newcastle United fan. That's the whole point of being a you you support a team so that when you have children, you can inflict it on them. That's that's the payoff. And you don't sort of steer that kid away from that that bond that can be really important to people. In and I this is from a family where I don't support the same team as my dad, but the and nobody else has any interest in football whatsoever. that's an important bond that's an important rite of passage so I think that's I'd never thought about it I think that's a really good way of looking at it that you take your kid even though you hate the owner because the owner won't be there when your kid's 30 40 like your, your kid doesn't have a lifetime of misery that is their birthright and you want to inflict it on them regardless who the owner is the the bit that I kind of fall down on is that I think that that you can't switch your support off and you, you he, Steve's completely right. You, like, if you if you have a problem with the sponsor, don't buy the shirt. That's not that hard. Like, it, in fact, it's it's a blessing because shirts are really expensive. Buy some fan memorabilia. Buy you know, buy a t-shirt from you know one of the millions of kind of really really high like quite high quality fan yeah. sites and stuff that you can express your support in lots of ways. Lots of ways without wearing official merchandise. I don't have any official merchandise of the team I support because. I much prefer to buy, if I'm going to buy any, and I've had very much of that, I would buy it from a fan site. The mainly i by just buy Quan t shirts. The um, the the I think I think just on a side note, I think Ed might now be a Bocca Juniors fan. I think I might have overdone the hipster stuff. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, um,
0: ex- that's gonna be expensive when he wants a know, season yeah.
1: ticket. What season ticket? The Bombonera. <laughs> the um, you're gonna have to resurrect also,
0: that WhatsApp group
3: and uh, and make travel plans to Buenos series we'll be, again.
1: Might we'll have to move the um, that wouldn't be bad. Uh, <laughs> I yeah, so in in terms of in terms of, of not backing, not kind of indulging the sponsor, I think that's fine. I think there's lots of ways. And you know, if you really object to a lot of the decisions that, that the owners make, you can not buy a season ticket. That's not that's not a great Calvary, to be perfectly honest, not having a season ticket. The you know, it's just, if, if you're really uncomfortable with the club, that is the obvious step to take. What where, where I think I lose threat lose the thread of the argument a little bit is this idea of you can go and watch football. You can is this thing about going to watch football at a lower level. You can, of course, and you should. That would be great. If so, you know, it's important to support community team. It's important to, you know, to have that link to your local area. It's much more affordable, all that stuff. Absolutely. But we, we all know, we've done episodes on, on whether you can change the team. Who was it whose dad changed the team that he supported? One of our listeners, his dad just switched. And there was this kind of outpouring of rage from everybody else who listened that that was not allowed. You can't do that. If you're a West Ham fan who objects to Sullivan and Gold, you can't suddenly de- de- declare yourself a sort of Lewisham FC fan. or oh. Lewisham. Cla- you can't go and support Clapton Orient. You can go and watch Clapton Orient, but you don't have this. You will never have the same emotional connection, I think, to the team that you are watching because you object to what your your main team is doing.
0: I wasn't talking about switching teams. I was it, more from the point of view of, you know, taken from you and Fraser's initial point, who, who suggested this. Subject about his increasing discomfort with supporting Rangers. Well, he can remain a Rangers fan. He can go less often or not at all. He can watch on TV. But if he feels his money would be better spent somewhere else, I think he mentioned Partick Thistle, then on a Saturday, go and watch Partick Thistle. He doesn't stop being a Rangers fan. Mm. He doesn't necessarily lose his identity as a Rangers supporter. He's just no longer financially invested in that. And we have spoken previously about how somebody who lives on the other side of the world, who supports a Premier League club, is their support any more or less legitimate than the person who goes every week? And I think we, drew, we came to the conclusion that it wasn't, mm. that, that their their passion for the club was just as valid as somebody who lives a 10 minute walk away and has a season ticket, because those are the circumstances that Surround them and 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 drive their ability, the the, the the level at which they are able to show their support. So by the same distinction, you must be able to say, This no longer sits comfortably. The way I have been supporting my club does not currently or does no longer sit comfortably with me. Are there different ways that I can support that team but also enjoy football and feel as though morally. I'm putting my money towards something more worthwhile.
1: Yeah, that's true. I, I suppose the only thing that falls... Yeah, that's absolutely right. The thing where it falls down, I guess, is it it, de- it depends on how much of your connection to football depends on that emotional bond to a team. But yeah, you, there are, you can definitely support a team without giving that team any money at all. That's not that hard. And I mean, if, a really sort of extreme example, you could not watch it on TV and you could not subscribe to Sky or BT or whoever. The, I In guess practice, you,
2: do people actually... Do any of these things, do you, you I don't know? Because it I sounds think, uh, to me, it sounds a bit of a push to ex- not expect maybe expect people to do this, but them actually doing it.
1: I think it does happen. I think you it do does. get people who who walk away from from the main. T- I think it's I suspect what Steve's describing is what happens most of all is that people kind of fall a little bit out of love with their with their team of birth or whatever, for whatever reason, and they maybe don't watch a non-lead team nearby. Or it Go and watch Stockport instead of instead of Man City or whatever it or whatever it might be, Tranmere instead of Liverpool, um, because they want that. Do they enjoy going to watch live football? But they don't feel that they have that connection anymore with the team that they grew up supporting. I, I don't think that that sort of alienation is particularly different, particularly rare. What I don't know is how much of it is based on the moral actions of senior of the elite teams.
0: It would be nice to think, and I know it's idealistic, and I was I suppose trying to make an extreme idealistic point, but it would be nice to think that there is just as many people that do that as there are supporters who for some reason which we've never quite got to the bottom of feel as though it is their responsibility to defend the club and the club's owners in the face of all overwhelming evidence to the contrary yes they're, they're, whether or not those whether they, whether or not those two sides of the scale balance out i don't know
3: yes there are there are there are grades of this but there are also grades of this because it's it's hard to make a stand it takes effort and you have to be consistent in your own views. You have to pass your own purity test if you are asking others to do that too. And that's, that's, that's an issue throughout, throughout the, the, the kind of the, the arguments about your, your moral codes and your moral compass and how you should live your life. But if you are, for example, a, a fan of one of those elite clubs, uh, a Manchester City fan or a PSG fan, if you are disquieted by all the things that we said earlier, And yet that those reasons, those are the reasons why your team is at its most successful in your lifetime. How much do you feel like you want to commit to begrudging yourself that success? So, for example, if you are if you are in your 50s um, or 40s and you weren't. weren't Don't bring 50s into
2: it. Why bring 50s into it? (laughs) If If you're very young, stick
3: with 40s. If you weren't around for Manchester City's heyday at the end of the sixties and the beginning of the seventies, through to the mid seventies, and so if you know if you if you're if your Manchester City supporting experiences were mid seventies onwards, after they won that 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 League Cup in seventy six, and you have got to the stage where you are bereft of any notable, save a Division Two playoff game final against Gillingham in nineteen ninety nine, you're bereft of these experiences aren't you in a situation where you have to think long and hard about this might be the only time in my life where my team is successful. Aren't you, aren't you going to say to yourself, I have supported them for 40 years prior to this happening. I may well, if you know, luck is on my side, support them for another 20, 30 years after this period of time in which there may not be any success whatsoever. So do you have to, I mean, how, how much do you have to want to cut off your nose in spite of your face? It's that—that's—that's that's a personal call,
1: and I think we all, as fans of all clubs, have to make lots of little. What's the word? Hang on. I think, as fans of all clubs, you have to make lots of little kind of. Oh, I thought I just assumed if I said the sentence again, I'd find the word. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Isn't that isn't that the definition of madness? Where you just repeat the same thing normally, over and over
1: hoping for a different outcome. Just say it over <laughs> and over again until it okay. pops out. This is this is, this this will surprise you, but normally when I start a sentence, I have no idea where it's going. I just assume really? that if oh. I that if the word if I keep on talking, the correct words will yeah. come out. You eventually, should be a football eventually. commentator. The, the, I'll start here. Let's see where we end up. What is what is the word I'm looking for? Like um tr- not truces, like. Or qualifications, it's like we've got to make lots of little. Is it anti-establishment? Compromises, theory?
2: compromises,
1: compromises. Yeah. Uh, former player,
2: <laughs> <the>, educated, <former.
1: laughs>
2: decorated novelist. And, and the only one
3: with <laughs> a all no- education. <laughs> <laughs> decorated
1: novelist. <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's fans of all clubs. We have to we have to make those compromises with ourselves all the time about whether it's about a sponsor or whether it's about a player that we've got or who's done something controversial, bitten somebody, for example, or been a racist or, or the, in Rangers case, kind of the behaviour of some, of, of some fans, Celtics case, the behaviour of some fans, whatever it might be, lots and lots of clubs have, fans of clubs have to kind of make, come to have to make, it isn't, the word is not compromised. <laughs> the, do you want me to, do you want me to thesaurus, compromise? No, no I'll, I'll, I'll look it up in a bit and, and work, and, and get angry with myself. We we have to go through that process all the time. And I I, I guess that where I it's not for me to tell any fan, or any of us to tell any fans how to behave. What I what I would say is the bit that I don't get is that link between these people own my club, therefore I have to defend them. Yeah. Like yeah. if you're if your if your club is owned by some some hedge fund in New York, you don't support the hedge fund. Like why would you? Yeah. It's ridiculous. You you accept that you're you can hope that your owners are good and that they've got a plan. You can, you can try and see the best in what they think or, or the best in what they do. But you don't have to kind of think, well, you know, what, my, my favourite hedge fund is definitely Elliott Management. Like, I just lo- I look at their portfolio. It's fantastic. The way they're activists, it's amazing. You just, you just accept it. And I, I think where, I, where what's interesting about PSG City and, and Newcastle, as we saw w- when the takeover was, was kind of um, mooted... Is the fact that the fans assume that some fans, not all fans, assumed that their job was not just to support the team but to kind of advocate for the potential owners. That was that is not something that even when clubs were owned by you know, local sausage magnates, as they still are in Germany, the it's not like you'd be like, Well, that, you know, I just that guy's sausage is a lot better, I'll definitely buy him. You just buy the best sausage, who cares? Like, but the owner do of the club is be- not the club, but people do that
3: because they feel inherently yeah conflicted I think and, that's what it that, is yeah and that action is to try and neutralize what they feel within themselves again well I'm not I'm not planting these views onto anybody else but it would if, if that was me that's my was, reading yeah it was it would be the insecurity that I felt about supporting that club at that time because of those reasons so I would seek to try and make myself feel it's like better Dr.
2: Jekyll and Mr Hyde isn't it there's two fans yeah. in there but there's, but there's always fighting th- each
3: other there's always in, in in supporting of a club or just being a football fan there is always that feeling whenever there's disquiet and I, I it's my number one thing I bang on about if you if you hurt if you feel hurt within you because of a result or because of a story or because of a situation that we've just been discussing the way that football fans tend to rationalize that is to not feel that hurt to lash out instead to scapegoat and so instead of just coming to terms with the difficulty of the conflict it is an effort to try and aggressively dismantle the, the points being made by those who are contrary to your own view, even if you feel it a little bit yourself.
1: Well, th- there is a there's a really a really kind of extreme example of this of this process that that is unrelated to geopolitics and stuff. But crew who've been at the centre of the, the allegations of over, over child abuse in football and who until extremely recently had behaved despicably about it, who who are not... In fact, I think that it's probably fair to say that their, their reaction has been... I mean, their, their reaction to it has been appalling. And by all accounts, amongst the fans, the club have been supported in that. And I, and I think the crew are a really... Oli Kay in The Athletic did a great piece on it about kind of how far your loyalty to a club will extend. That is as clear an example as you'll get... Of, of that loyalty being able to basically endure pretty much anything. Because what, what crew have forced their, through their own, not just the, not just the initial events, which are horrific, but through that crew's handling of it, they've forced their fans to basically suspend what should be the kind of, clear, what is compared to, do I approve of there being a World Cup in Qatar, which is a complicated issue, you very clearly do not approve of child abuse. You, you very obviously do not approve of that. That is, that is not a, a, you know, a tricky moral quandary. That is an obvious yes, no. And crew, Crew's fans, to some extent, have stuck with the club. And I find that, on, on one level, really worrying that that loyalty will... That's beyond even Newcastle fans abusing Jamal Krasadji's widow on Twitter, which also happened last year and, it again, is staggering. But for, for crew fans to to be able to kind of rationalise to themselves their support of the club suggests that, that that bond with the club is so overpowering that that it will basically steamroll at any moral objection whatsoever, which is to an extent kind of worrying. And it's, it's also
3: a little bit strange because that counteracts the point we've just been making about the longevity of your, of your fandom. You, mm. you are able surely to, to apply a little bit of context to something that might have happened a few years ago and, and, and criticise the club of that moment because it's not necessarily the club of this yeah. moment. So if that's the case, why can't you then apply that context and, and look back and say that that wasn't the right thing to do? Uh, but yes, you're right, Rory, the strength is, is multi-generational and it's incredibly
0: strong. And that's how a lot of supporters do, don't they? Compartmentalise the team and the club; they are separate entities. Which is why the, the thing of supporters defending ownership is is so extraordinary, because that is the opposite mm-hmm. to that. Uh, uh, fan activism is so difficult, and we've, we've talked about it as though just go out and do it. But if any the the green and gold campaign at Manchester United, that was incredibly effective for a reasonably. Yeah. long amount of time, but ultimately has dwindled. There's not been those that the protests, it was the visual, that, that was the visual symbol, the green and gold scarves and shirts of, of some supporters stance against the Glazer family's ownership of Manchester United. And it even led to some supporters breaking away and setting up their own club so disgusted that's how how
3: hard it is that's what i was saying about you have to be really dedicated and it's an effort to do so for this amount of time
0: but you don't really see much in the way of green and gold at old trafford anymore uh well well, you don't see any colors at old trafford in the stands at the moment but before the lockdown and afterwards you you won't see much in the way of green and gold and all available seats will be taken it's not the protest and 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 a a lot of the fact you know the fans will be wearing certainly at home games they will be wearing, you know, United shirts with club sponsor on. That the damage was short term. It's not been, it's not been long lasting. That the, the club has ridden that out relatively comfortably.
3: And and that's that's what that that's, that is the the long term strategy. Knowing that that is most likely to happen, but also knowing that. That success on the field, which is sometimes intrinsically linked to the reason that there is a protest, success on the field for the reasons we've just been speaking about, because how do you how do you not enjoy that if you're a fan who is disquieted by some of the situations that they face at the club? But that success irons out a lot of issues. And I think clubs know that cynically or otherwise, Mm. they know that delivering success is the ultimate Ambition of both them and their fans, and I speak about fans being a homogenous whole here because success will very rarely be met with
1: dissatisfaction. And the flip side is true that so a lot of City fans, and I presume maybe this happens in France as well, a lot of City fans sort of cling to this idea that, or or a lot of that minority of City fans cling to this idea that that Chelsea were never criticised, despite the 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 doubt over the sources of Abramovich's wealth. That's A, not true. There has been lots of, of coverage of, of exactly how Roman Abramovich became so rich. And there's no question there are moral issues there. But I think part of the reason that there was never this kind of groundswell of, of kind of moral indignation about it is because Chelsea would win things and then blow up. So it never felt as though, as though there was this kind of dynasty ar- arising... In, in West London because, you know, fine, Mourinho wins two titles, but then all of a sudden United win it and then Mourinho sacked and it's all chaos at Chelsea for as long as, you know, for for X number of years. They've been um, too entertaining. They've given well, us they, they have, and, stories. That's and I mean. think to an extent, it being it what what interests me with City and PSG is what happens, and I think the pandemic has made this more likely, what happens if in 10 years' time we're doing episode 2000 of this podcast and the... It's it's forbid, terrible match. We massive. have long, we're long, long since run out of content and... Which edition of the Manscaped Lawnmower will we be? <laughs> <laughs> we'll all be bald as coots. The um <laughs> some, some of it through choice. The um
0: the is if if, if so we if, will have evolved.
1: If we if we um if we're in some sort of period where where you know PSG and City have carved up the Champions League between them for the last five, six years, if City have won eight out of ten titles, if PSG have won 15 out of 17 in France or whatever. Will that change the way that fans in general react morally to, to, to those clubs? Because at the moment, I think there's a lot of disinterest, to be perfectly honest, among supporters of other teams. There isn't a groundswell of hatred for either, particularly, except you know, in France, Marseille hate PSG, but I'm not sure anybody hates them any more than they used to. Um, and I think that's really, really significant. The other thing that we should probably just touch on is, Steve's used, used the right word as well, and that's compartmentalised. Fans are really good at compartmentalising which bits of their team they want to support and which teams they don't which bits they don't. Racist it, racist incidents are the are the most obvious example of that. That there are there will be plenty of Lazio fans who abhor the fact that every so often the the irriducibili and others will do something racist, but it doesn't affect their support of the team. They they are able to disassociate themselves from the stain of that. In the same way as there'll be there's loads and loads of Rangers and Celtic fans who aren't sectarian in the slightest, and they'll but they'll still either tolerate it, turn a blind eye to it, or in some cases actively, not necessarily support it, but make sure to effectively to kind of what about it so they'll make sure that, that that the debate is drowned out by something that somebody else has done, or why why doesn't this matter, or why you know yeah. what about this, and I think that shows that that fans' moral compasses ultimately are are not only unique and individualized is absolutely right but also probably quite fluid
3: and that brings us back to, to where we started about about having your moral compass guided yes by your own personal beliefs but also diluted by colored by masked by the emotions that you feel towards something and that that is not individual to football because you might have uh, a musical stuff, you know, Michael Jackson has gone through this argument, hasn't it? Do you, are you still allowed to like Michael Jackson? Can you still like Michael Jackson? Should Michael Jackson's music be kept separate from the argument about his personal life, which, of course, has been much talked about? So that, that there are those elements where football does marry up with, with other cultural phenomena.
1: Roman, Roman Polanski's films, Woody Allen's films, Harvey Weinstein's films. like We, we have to make these, these judgment calls. On lots of stuff. On I mean, art, even even high art is not that not that Woody Allen films aren't high art, but the you know there the, are the, all of those issues as well um, that we. Dr. Have Seuss. To... Oh yeah, I, I don't. I yeah.
3: Do you know it's, what? Well, but, but it but it does play this. This is this yeah, touches like this, on. We haven't got time to yeah. talk about it now, but this touches on council culture and how cancel culture ha- hasn't actually infiltrated football to any great degree yet. Mm. I say yet because it might do, but I say the re- the reason it hasn't is because of exactly everything that we've spoken about for the last 40 minutes or so. Rory, was the word you were looking for concession? No, something no. like that. No, Got Not it... compromise, not concession. I'm just thinking about other C words, caveats.
1: Compromise, concession... I tell you, you've got a... Oh, chinch looks like he's
0: got a C word going through his mind.
1: <laughs>
2: very, yeah, four-letter C word. It is time
0: for Never mind.
3: mind, Jack and Ori, What a Soccer Story. This is Andy tells us a tale from his playing on broadcasting days. Of all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed, do not use that word, Chinch.
2: No, I won't, I won't. This was a, a recent meeting, very recent meeting I had with uh, a former teammate of mine, uh, and it's going to lead to a book recommendation. Now, we have a decorated novelist in our midst, so I'm not going to get... It's clearly not going to be as good as one of Rory Smith's,
1: but have you been decorated or...? I'm not a novelist. You,
2: you, well, are you, you? You write history books then, do you? Footballing history? I'm a,
1: I'm a historian.
2: You're a, a decorated historian or just a historian? Yeah, he's he's a, gifted, a gifted writer. Not gifted. No, he's, he's better than that.
0: Chinch is obviously really impressed with all of the characters and the, the depth of their backstories that you came up with in Mr Rory. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it, <laughs> there, was, it, it, there listen, were not
0: there were novelistic elements to it. I'm that not book that to. serves
2: a purpose; it holds open the bathroom door quite beautifully. No, but anyway, no, no I,
0: way was there a football manager called Gar Butt.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. But anyway, this is get, getting back to my story. Uh, yes, it was Patrick Kevin Francis Michael Nevin, who I bumped into at a recent Newcastle match. And we were chatting away, and you know, generally slagging off people who we think are are terrible within the industry. And we both agreed on one person, which is excellent, that it's not just me. Uh, and he said, "I've written a book. I've written a book. It's going to be coming out in in May, 2021." So, and Pat and I got on famously when he was at Everton. We we both kind of saw ourselves as, as maybe not the most typical footballers you've you've ever met. Have you all met? You all know Pat. Have you all met Pat? or yeah, Work with I don't Pat. Really, no. he, he is a he is a. He's a highbrow chap, isn't he? And I don't mean he's got high eyebrows. He's, he's an intelligent man. And uh, his book is going to be called The Accidental Footballer. And it struck a chord with me because he was telling me again, and it, it kind of, as soon as he said it, it, it made perfect sense because he kind of, he wasn't ever really a footballer. He had the talent for it. And he actually said to me, kind of felt obliged he had to follow it through because he was good and people wanted him to play and he was getting paid for it. But he, he thought he was many other things rather than actually a footballer. But that's how his life panned out. And then obviously going to the media and doing a lot of writing, he considers himself to be more of a writer than anything else. So that's why the book made sense. And I thought, well, that kind of, I'm clearly not on his level intellectually, but it, it it's why I've always kind of empathised with Pat. Maybe we do, we are able to, to speak on, on a different, and talk about the game. And, and we we weren't, we weren't, kind of as involved in the game as other lads of my age and, and other pros that I came across, it was all or nothing for them. If maybe a part of myself, it was different, but that doesn't mean that we didn't love playing the game. Very different. But the, the book could be very, very interesting. But the disappointing thing was I kept saying, so, so when's the, when's the book coming out? I'm in the book, by the way, I'm in the book. This is, this is just a, a byproduct a of the story. This is not the main, the main reason I'm telling you about this. Uh, uh, they, with Howard Kendall and the stories, I think I've told a few of these stories, haven't I, in preseason. So they're in the book. And Pat said, hopefully, they'll be well-received and that they're not meant to be like a real dig at at Howard. It's just what happened. And people won't believe what happened, but he's going to tell the story. And he said, you get a a couple of mentions. So I said, all right, so it's going to be, it's out when? So it's May 2021. Oh, right, so it's out in May 2021. Expecting Pat to say, I'll I'll send you a copy. But he may, I don't know, I don't know how many copies of this book he might sell, but clearly he's looking to get every penny he can (laughs) for every copy so i got a a, it was a free copy of mister that i got roy wasn't it i didn't absolutely i I maybe paid for it in other ways but pat i was expecting him maybe to say give me your address or anything and i'll let you know when it's out and i'll send you a copy and maybe i don't know whether there's going to be a launch who knows but it it would be great to be involved but it seems as though i might well have to pay money for a book that i'm in which i think immorally, we've talked about morals in this episode it's a disgrace it's an absolute disgrace so pat if word gets back to you, I, I, there'd be certain people surely he's going to be giving a free copy to. I feel being in the book, I should be one of them. But <laughs> this has also led me to think about maybe with a bit of help, with quite a lot of help. Maybe there's a you know a book that I should maybe pen. I initially thought about writing about my life in football. I've got a working title here, uh, it's just Balls. Uh, sponsored by Manscaped. Um, That's just a working title. I think Rory and Hugh can work and Steve as well can maybe work on the words and the the title for the book. But after this episode, after this pod, really, I've changed my view on what I should really write about. I'm not the most interesting person in the world, so I'm going to write about the life and times of Pelham Von Dollop. (laughs) The football world needs to know about this person. So with your help as a quartet, let's do it let's do this let's pelham von do- dollop let's get him out there to the world and let's find out exactly what his life was all about
1: if there's any t- consolation Chinch, um i saw pat at anfield about six months ago and he said that he'd written a book and oh really he'd like to send me a copy so i gave him my address <laughs> i've seen nothing
0: you know That's... what Chinch? at least pat respects you enough to have been honest with you he's lied straight to
1: rory's face Except he said that he, did, th- did, it. he that, did it. He did that, it he did Yeah, it just, that's it. That's my it, take on it. It was just a taunt. I didn't even mention it. He brought it up himself. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And now I've just been sat around for six months waiting for a book that's never arrived.
2: May 2021, apparently. Thanks, and if it, right, hang on a minute. If he sends you a free copy and I don't get one, you're not going to be in the book, clearly. Because you no. have no impact on, his, no. on his, his life and career. No, no, no I not have. At all. I was fined along with him for staying in on a pre season tour. <laughs> I should be getting, on moral grounds, I should be getting a free book from Nevin. Come love, on, Patrick.
3: Keep your correspondence coming to menu at gmail.com, particularly if your name is either A, Pat Nevin, or B, Von Dollop. <laughs> um, please subscribe, share, rate, and view as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve, Andy, and Rory, and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another Set Piece Menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. If you had Thank to you.
2: guess, if you had to guess about what position, what type of player Pelham Von Dollop was, well, I'm going for like a, a kind of robust centre half. Is that? Am I?
1: No. Well, he must have been. He must be like 19th century or very early 20th. So he, he would be playing in a two-three-five. So I'm going to say that he's in a, a three-piece he, suit. He's an inside wing.
0: Inside wing, Steve. Well, everybody in that era played wing half, didn't they? They were just all wing halves. I thought. Yeah. Like, yeah. That's the only description you ever here. So I'm assuming. What, what position is where is wing half on the
1: pitch? So wing in half. In, if you think of a two-three-five. Yep. The two of the defenders. Yep. The three are what we call midfielders, and the five of the forward line. The wing halves, I think, were the two wider ones in the three. The so yeah, so not the
2: widest, the next in. Yeah. I have. Um, yeah.
1: I have some terrible
3: news. Oh
1: no! Helen von Dollop's not real. It's made up, isn't it?
3: I just googled him, and Rich has misspelt him. Oh, oh, no. oh no!
2: What's it's, his real? Pelham Von Bollock.
3: <laughs> Pel- Pelham George, known as PG to his friends, Von Donop, with an N, oh, not oh, it's an not L. The same. Oh. No, it doesn't no, have the same impact.
0: Cool. Right, we'll... I'm not writing that book, forget that. Delete, start again.